Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. They play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Indie Cornrows. Uh, I mean, over on Apple Podcasts and read us over IndieCornrows.com as well. We have a lot of stuff cooking out. Um, I just dropped my draft guide yesterday. It was probably a lot of words too long but it was it was a, a work of labor i got my thoughts out on the majority of the guys who i watched this cycle and, and really enjoyed and put a company and works in from people who i really respect uh, and we are coming at you the day after the draft i am joined by good friend and basketball badass and colleague uh, caitlin cooper caitlin how are you doing today i'm doing well i mean people have had a good long break from listening to me and i think that's probably a good thing but happy to be back well i missed your presence i'm very glad to have you back on the pod and to talk about some pacers things um we had a pretty eventful draft yesterday in indiana um obviously the pacers came in with the 13th pick uh and both the 54th and 60th uh i think we can start just by talking all right well they drafted chris duarte out of oregon 13th is wing. Uh, we'll th- talk more about him. I'm going to have deep dives this week on the draft picks. Uh, and Isaiah Jackson, they selected with the 22nd pick after a, a, a trade went down with Washington and the Lakers. Um, I think the first place we can start here, uh, let's talk about Aaron, the Aaron Holiday trade. I think that is a good, good jumping off point. Um, how do you want to go about talking about this one? Well, with Aaron, I mean, we talked about this whenever we did our player review pods. It was never beneficial to him that his role, especially this past season, was yanked all over the place. I mean, you and I said, like, he Mm -hmm. started out the season after TJ Warren got hurt and was effectively starting at the three defensively. I mean, he was playing up against Mikel Bridges in a game against the Phoenix Suns. There was moments where he got thrown out there to defend fours, like Gallinari in Atlanta. Like, some of that stuff was kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. But at the same time... I feel like there has to be a balance in evaluating him between there was never consistency for him to really work on his reads in the pick and roll. But at the same time, I don't think he came uh, to his own rescue enough. I didn't really see a lot of development from him in terms of his placement of pick and roll passes at pocket passes and just his overall decision-making. I mean, he would still have games where 
for a few, you know, as an undersigned combo guard, he might be playing off the ball and he'd be in Orlando and he'd hit six threes off of Sabonis in the post or doing other stuff. And it's like, hey, that's what worked a year ago under Nate McMillan when he was playing next to McConnell. And then he would have other games like when they were in Utah playing that matinee and he's like taking kamikaze drives at Rudy <laughs> Gobert that leads to threes at the other end. Like there was just never a time where you felt like for a very long stretch that he was putting it all together. And if they feel good about using TJ McConnell off the bench and feel confident that they can resign him at a decent number, then it makes sense for both sides to move on so that he can get an opportunity somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, it's, it just kind of felt like something was coming through. I know Jay Michael had reported at the Indy star earlier this week that, um, Aaron had been just kind of ready to be out of Indiana for a little bit of time now, which makes sense. Like we're talking about, I, I think it's good for him to move on and get a new opportunity. Um, we'll talk more about the picks in depth uh, later, but I think just on surface, it, it makes sense in a lot of ways. Uh, kind of going off that as well. It really seems like TJ McConnell is kind of a shoe in to be back in Indiana. I don't want to, you know, set that up. I don't have sources or anything on it, but again, based off reporting and everything, the way that it's lining up. Um, also, in terms of looking at Doug McDermott, it seems less and less likely that he's going to be in Indiana next year. Um, a J. Michael also reported on that from the Indy Star, uh, saying essentially the same thing that you know, with how high his price tag is going to be, it's just very unlikely that Doug will be back in a Pacers uniform next year. Again, that all remains to be seen as free agency starts somehow. Uh, in I think four days, which is just absolutely mind blowing to me. Um, but we will see on that front. So moving into uh, looking at the roster construction now, I just speaking directly on Chris Duarte, uh, I want to hit on this really quick. I'm planning on writing something on it later today too. Um, I just think that we need to be a little bit more careful and, and nuanced in how we're talking about him. I get that he is, and this is making me feel old. He is the same age as me, and people are saying that that is old for a prospect. I am not old. I just graduated from college. Please don't berate me. Um, he, you, you got to have nuance with it. He was much later to basketball than the majority of, of prospects you're going to see. He didn't pick up a basketball until he was a teenager. Uh, he's had an insane growth curve uh, coming from, you know, coming off the bench in JUCO to being one of the better players in the country last year. And I understand he's a little bit older, but I do think Chris Duarte was worthy of a lottery pick. I do think that it is fair to say that the team, it wasn't necessarily my first choice. I don't, I don't think that it was the most um, risky draft pick, but at the same time, I think that this makes sense and he's a lot better than people are giving him credit for. Um, I'm not trying to sound gatekeepy with, you know, how much I've watched him play or anything, but I just think, there has to be a little bit more nuance with it and let's wait to make any kind of giant sweeping statements on it until we actually see him play. Um, he's kind of a combo wing is the way I would put it right now. He's like a two, three. Um, he's six, six has a solid wingspan. I really like what he can do as an off ball player. He's good coming off screens. He can self create a little bit with pull-ups. He can get to the rim. Um, and He's just a very good shooter. I, I like a lot of his craft and skill. He has some work to do as a playmaker, but he's coming in more as a play finisher. So I think it makes sense. And he brings more size. I, I think that's something that we really see that the team is needing. He's a very, very good off ball defender. 
Um, like he just has, I'll have to send you some clips, Caitlin, because his off ball instincts are just so tremendous on defense has to clean up his closeouts, which I think most guys who come to the NBA are going to have the same thing. Um, but I'm excited for him. Uh, looking at Isaiah Jackson too. Uh, so it's a little bit different with him because he's a, uh, he's a center offensively at the moment because he's still pretty raw but he's ridiculously athletic. Like he is one of the more athletic players in the draft. He can, he can guard out on the perimeter a little bit. Um, he's, I think close to the highest vertical in the draft, obviously Keon Johnson is the number one, but point being like Isaiah Jackson is coming in with some really tantalizing skills. And I would imagine that the team views him as somebody who could be a four long-term because I do think he has the athletic profile, but they clearly view highly how they can develop his offensive game. Cause that's going to be a big part for him. He's shown some, uh, touch, uh, you know, obviously within the arc, he's very good, but he really did not take a lot of shots outside of six feet last year was a decent free throw shooter, but, uh, showed the ability to really face up and, and punish some, some slower bigs that got switched out onto him. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. We have a lot more to, to talk about. Um, but just wanted to give my quick rundown on them. Right. So, um, yeah, so I think one thing that I would back up and say is that a year ago, in between Nate McMillan and Nate Bjorkren, um, Ryan Carr, who does the head of scouting for the Pacers, he did a podcast with the sideline guys where he talked about how that their their big board wouldn't change, but their recommendations might change mm-hmm. based on moving from what Nate McMillan might value to what Nate Bjorkren might value. And like the Chris Duarte thing was obviously being rumored with regards to the Pacers just about everywhere that that was kind of the pick that they had circled. And he right away from I've started watching stuff on him shortly after a lot of that stuff surfaced. He very much seems like a Rick Carlisle player. Yeah. So um, because what you're mentioning, like, I mean, he shot 14 to 31 off screens. He's good. It's a catch and shoot. Um, guy obviously but he can also shoot whether it's against a switch I've seen him attack against hedges I've seen him shoot against drop that if you saw different types of defenses at least at the college level that was something that he could do and I don't know that I feel like I, I think that I don't remember if it was Rick Carlisle or Chad Buchanan last night mentioned that you know he could play the one, two, or the three. I don't, I think he, he's shown glimpses in the pick and roll from some of the stuff that I saw. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I think he's accurate enough as a passer that I would necessarily. Yeah, I'm not there with refer the one. Yet, to but... it. Yeah. Cause I mean, they talked to him about being a playmaker and it's like, you know, there's been times since he's been in college, he's been able to work on stuff. We'll see in summer league and as next year starts, but I don't think his passing is, is super accurate, but what you're saying defensively. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff pops. Like, I mean, he even had some possessions as a weak side shot blocker Mm -hmm. as can do some statistically impactful things with blocks and steals knows when to be aggressive off ball has pretty decent recovery skills. Like you said, gets stuck in the mud on closeouts some, but, um, I think right away, like based on what, how Oregon was using him, like coming off a lot of flares, like I've talked about this with Rick Carlisle and with the Terry Stotts article I did, like that's a pretty big feature of the Dallas ecosystem. And Rick Carlisle will be a guy who's going to tailor this offense to what players he's had. I mean, he said that about himself, but conceptually, the Mavericks were very much a team that like, if we have a new non-shooter on the weak side, we are going to flare that. We are going to have that person moving so that it's harder for the defense just to sit and sag into the paint. So 
I can see a place where he would fit there. I mean, they ran plays with Tim Hardaway Jr. last year where, you know, it's chin into exit. They like to use a lot of exit screens to clear out those tags. You could move him off in those ways. Like, I, I just think that it's pretty easy to see what his fit is within the offense, regardless. Like, I know a lot of the complaints last night where, you know, he doesn't have as much upside or, you know, there was other people that people seem to want. But I think something that you and I have complained about over the last couple of years is like, I'm very much best player available. Rick Carlisle said last night that this was the person that they thought was the best player available. So there's that. But with Goga, not to rehash things, but they drafted Goga when they already had two centers in the lineup. They have yet to move either center and, and Goga there. There's not a clear place. And I, I don't know what you thought, but when Rick Carlisle did the prior presser and talked about maybe staggering Miles and Sabonis even more, which I was like, most, well, what about Goga? Yeah, Goga's <laughs> stock sunk to an all-time yeah. low when they were talking about um, staggering them. So point being through this long-winded answer is that Goga's never really had an opportunity to consistently play. And it seems like there's a clearer path to me that Duarte might be able to actually come in and contribute right away, which is what they indicated i don't know where you are on that no i totally agree and i think um like i i don't think i would say i see him as a four or anything but i do think he's a way like you can you can throw him out at the two you can throw him out at three maybe there's a situation where he gets to the four i don't really like his positional strength a ton in that regard yeah um but like point being he just gives you a lot of lineup versatility that the team has missed um, he's still not like the perfect quote unquote like six eight switch everything wing but i think that's also a thing that just doesn't really exist. There's like seven of those players. So I think we get exactly. a little bit too excited with that. He just gives you the ability to do a lot of things that the team missed last year. Like he's coming in. He's uh, there's going to be a, a learning curve as a, as a rookie for sure, but he has better defensive tools and instincts than Jeremy lamb to be completely blunt while bringing oh, a lot sure. of the same things. And I think we saw even last year, even with Jeremy struggling defensively, like, those first 10 games when he was back, I mean, you saw how important he was to have somebody who was coming off the bench that could hit shots and, and provide extra offense. Even if it's like, you know, like coming off a screen and getting to your spot, like that's something Chris Duarte can do at this next level. Um, so I think it, it was a, it was a solid selection and I really like what he's going to bring to the team. I'm excited to see him play at summer league too. Um, have you seen anything on Isaiah Jackson yet? Yeah. One, one last thing. I oh, liked yeah, what sure. you said. I liked what you said about like the expectations of people being able to, you know, switch across like three and four positions. Like there's just so few people that can actually do that. And it kind of felt like the presser strayed into that territory a bit, mm -hmm. like, because I, I do think the Pacers are looking for guys who are less schemable in the playoffs and can do more things. And like what I said, like at least at the collegiate level, it, he showed that offensively he could do things against different types of defense. He does have some off the dribble game in him so that if a team is switching off screen stuff, like two years when Doug played against the Celtics, like he basically got wiped off the floor when they were going over and switching because at that point in time, he couldn't really put the ball on the floor to do anything else. And if he wasn't playing minutes with Sabonis, it was going to be hard to be getting him stuff, let alone what happened against the heat when Sabonis wasn't playing. So there's that. But I mean, 
I think that Carlisle mentioned like that he's very switchy and that he can be combative defending switches and rolls against bigger guys. And I kind of raised an eyebrow about that a little bit. Like, yeah, obviously that would be tremendous if he could, but it looked to me like in the post that he was, he was giving up, as you say, positional strength a bit. So, I mean, if you're late switching in the clock, maybe he can veer into a roller a little bit, but like, if it's an all out, just, you know, switch, you know, two, four switch and a pick and roll, I would be a little bit, hesitant about that but we'll see yeah um yeah so over to yeah isaiah um do i hate how do i want to word this <laughs> it, feel, it feels like there was like a big reaction like you you didn't watch the presser live when the comments were coming in but it seemed like a lot of people were big mad that they drafted yet another big and like we just said with gogo like there hasn't really been opportunity there but in this case like i didn't get the overall impression like they clearly liked him. I mean, they gave up, they traded Aaron, they traded four seconds to get the 31st pick. And then they traded Aaron and the 31st pick to move up to draft him. So he was clearly a player that they liked, but it didn't sound to me like they thought he was as ready to play as Duarte, that there would need to be some development from him. So I'm not sure that I think that like this automatically is a signal that, you know, somebody else is going to be on the move. It, it, they could be looking to move one of the bigs. I, it, obviously, they've been having a lot of conversations as the reports go, but I don't really feel like I need to jump into like be angry that they draft mm-hmm. another big because I'd rather wait and see what the comprehensive look of the team building looks like. Like We haven't even hit free agency, so it's possible they do move a big, and then maybe there is some occasional time for him to come in and contribute or it's possible that they're already envisioning that he's going to spend a lot of time with the Mad Ants next year and it doesn't really matter that they already have three centers on the roster because Goga can continue to play backup if they think that this too big thing is going to continue to happen but um, aside from that I think it's a little bit like what you said about Duarte being able to switch across multiple positions like I think that from some of the stuff I've seen that Jackson can hang on the perimeter Mm. and that there's more that you could do with switching with him, but I, I just think that there's so few players in the NBA. I mean, I can probably count them on one hand, maybe not even needing all five fingers of like Draymond and Bam who can actually like switch on to a one and make that a negative matchup to the point where that person might take a negative dribble. So like that feels like a pretty high expectation to me, but I did like during the presser, one thing that stood out to me a lot was that Rick Carlisle referenced multiple times that he has that Jackson has really good feel that Kentucky told them during the draft process like you're going to be surprised by this kid's feel and level of skill level because he didn't really get to show it off at Kentucky because Mm -hmm. of the limited spacing that was there and and when you watch him he does have some decent instincts in the short roll which I think plays well again in the Rick Carlisle system and because he is a lob threat to the degree that he is and how quick his second jump is and how fluid he is getting to the basket out of the role. Um, There's a lot of plays that they used last year with Dwight Powell that I wrote about in the Rick Carlisle playbook thing that I broke down that you could, I'm, pretty confident you could plug him into whether those are plays that are being you know drawn up for the mad ants if they use the exact same stuff or whatever i just see the fit and and vertical gravity is something that that rick carlisle has made use of when the bigs are on the floor so um just them talking about his athleticism his shot blocking but then also making a point that once again i feel like that's somewhat both of these are very rick carlisle picks and that it's clear that he values uh 
being able decision making in addition to like the raw tangible skills and and being able to make reads in some of those situations because in addition like he has a reputation of being like a play caller and kind of micromanaging with sets but the Mavericks did play uh more random last year and mm-hmm. they've kind of trended that way I mean that's what works in the playoffs eventually teams can scout all of your plays they know what you're going to do and you need to have guys out on the floor that when a, when something breaks down they're going to be able to do the next thing and they said that that was one thing that that mattered to them with the Jackson pick that they felt that he was more skilled and had better feel than he was being credited for so no that's a really that, great point oh, yeah sorry, and that being said off. that like Chad Buchanan did say he's not quite as ready to play as as Duarte is so I'm not expecting that he's gonna you know that we should be judging him right away and what he is. He's clearly going to take a little bit more time. Most of the draft experts I've seen think he's going to be a late bloomer because I mean, I, I kind of anticipate that I'll be writing some articles about like, what is this guy doing as a screener with some of these screens? <laughs> but um, yeah, you go ahead and say what you were going to say. Oh yeah. I mean, I was just going to agree to totally. Like I think one of the things that I like, even just going back, like I had a fringe first round, first round grade on him. Jeez, I can't speak. Um, and I, I mean, I thought the value was there. And, and point being, just looking at everything, uh, like you have to look at what he's going to be in a couple of years. And I know it's easy to for me to just be like, oh, well, you know, like trust this. I still, the, he's not, not the, not, probably not the guy who I would have picked, but I, I like the theory behind it. Like you can see, like, like you're mentioning not a guy who I consider switchable, but also like same thing, like, like looking at Scotty Barnes got considered switchable and he's like, we just have to have nuance with things. And this is me going on a slight, slight tangent. So I apologize. But like when we're looking at like, um, like Scotty Barnes playing college, you have to know like, okay, he's going against an NCAA athlete. And that's not to like belittle that guy, but like if you are an NBA player at the college level, you are like a, 97th percentile minimum athlete for the most part against some of the guys you're playing against. And so it looks better than it's going to look at the NBA level. Like Scotty Barnes can switch on to smaller wings or, um, you know, cover some, some bigger guys as well. Well, hanging with, with bigger wings, but he's more of a rotational defender. It's different. Like, and I know this is even a pacer guy, but just like some of the guys that I see called switchable all the time, you just have to like take a little bit of a, a different view with it and say like, okay, well, Maybe you can switch in some regards, like looking at Thad. Like, I think Thad is one of the best examples of that. Um, Like, would I consider him fully switchable? No, but like, he's a guy who's so smart positionally, has the athletic tools to do it, and he could hang with most players on court. But no, you're not going to switch him on the guards because you're just giving up too much doing that. Um, But with Isaiah um, coming in right away, I agree. Like he's kind of in some regards, he has some of the same intangibles with looking at like miles Um, as a, like he's got real timing as a shot blocker. That's pretty impressive, but also like miles had fouling problems when he first came in the league. And Isaiah is like tenfold of that right now. And I don't mean that in a a bad way, but that's something he's really going to have to rep out and, and, and find his way through. But I really like what you mentioned with the field because um, it's just easier to find ways to get somebody on court when they see the floor better and they, they just can read situations and decisions. And I do think he'll spend quite a bit of time with the Mad Ants, to be honest. And that just makes sense. Like it's, I think we're just at the point now where we should realize, Hey, the G league is a good thing. We've seen it yeah. work for, for, for very good teams. The team utilized it well last year. Um, and we're starting to see kind of the fruits of that. So I think it's a, it's, it's good to look at developing guys in that way. Cause it's, it's beneficial for them. Um, 
And I, I think it's more about just keeping the long view with him. Um, clearly, they they have a plan for how they want to develop him. Um, and I'd imagine they just see him more as a four than as a true big. Um, obviously, could play some five, but I think that's how they're envisioning him. But yes, I uh, I'm very excited to to see more, especially in summer league. And, and one last quick question for you about him. When is the last time that the Pacers had a big man who they could just sit in the dunker spot and throw a lob to? Because I feel like it's been 10 years, maybe longer. Yeah, and I mean, and part of the thing is, is like we say that, but then when you watch Carlisle's offense, just like, um, I mean, I, I wrote about the play because I admired it clear back whenever the Pacers couldn't score against Philadelphia's 2-3, as I'm sure you remember when Matisse and, and Ben I Simmons do, were up top. I do recall yeah. that, yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, how can you forget? But um, they were funneling everybody middle with their stances. And I was like a few, not too long before that they had played the Mavericks. And I noticed in that game, that was like, Oh, that X play with, with Luca was fantastic because the screeners come in from the middle and they screen the inside, which basically tears a hole for Luca to get downhill. Well, I was actually Jalen Brunson in that game. It wasn't even Luca that did it. Mm-hmm. And um, that way, when the person gets inside, the person at the back of the zone has to step up and then Przingis and whoever's in the opposite corner goes in and it, it would be for a lob. So a lot of times in the cases that you're saying, like they, they spread people out from there and have them them crash. But yeah, and to your point, no, like the Pacers have not had guys who play above the rim in general. I mean, Cassius Stanley in theory, but we don't see him <laughs> yeah. very often. We'll uh, we'll see what his – I'm curious what his fit is on the roster next year because I think uh, that was one of the wins for – a win for Cassius yesterday because by trading both the second-round picks and they ended up signing Dwayne Washington with the two-way out of Ohio State, who I have not seen film on. I have to watch. Um, I know he's a really good shooter, but that's all I have on him right now. I didn't see uh, any Ohio State during this draft cycle. Um but yeah, I, uh, I I think that 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 gives Cassius a little bit more leeway this year, and hopefully we'll see him get some opportunities. Um, but uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the the free agency rumors and reporting that have been around the team? Yeah, let's do that. All right, so we can start by talking about Lonzo Ball uh, because okay. you had a really great thread on him that I encourage people to read, and I'll be sure to tag um, in the post on on IC. Uh, there were reports. I'm trying to remember. I think it was Zach Lowe had it on yeah. the Lowe post um, that he had heard thrown around multiple times. Uh, the idea of Malcolm Brogdon for a Lonzo Ball sign and trade uh, with the Pelicans. Um, obviously, no other framework was given that deal, but it seemed like it was just kind of a uh, upfront one to one based on on how that was framed. Uh I, there's again, like, we're, I think you and I both try to bring a lot of nuance with everything, but I always like saying there's nuance to it. Uh, Lonzo Ball is a very good player. Uh, I think, you know, obviously he's young. I think he's 23 or 24 um, and is coming off his rookie deal, which is why he's up for extension. Um, the idea of trading Malcolm for Lonzo one on one would just give me a lot of questions to how the front office views the team con- construction right now. Uh, and I, I guess that would be more in line with, okay, do they see Karras as a lead ball handler? Because I think when looking at Lonzo and I, I don't know if you had the same thing happen. Anytime I've ever tweeted about Lonzo ball, I, that's the worst I've ever been quote tweeted in my life. Um, I literally just was watching a Pelicans game one time and I don't really follow that many people who cover the Pelicans or I, I don't think I have that many people who are Pelicans fans that cover me, but I mean, that follow me. Um, 
And I just tweeted that Lonzo Ball is more of a wing than a point guard. And I had 20 quote tweets on it blasting me because I was like saying I was anti-Lonzo Ball. I'm like, no, he just like he doesn't really get downhill. Like he's a good connective passer and he can shoot, but he's not really somebody who can run an offense. because He's not bending a defense too much. Right. So, yeah, in the thread, like and, and I mostly agree with you that. I filtered the data and there's 49 guards in the NBA last year who averaged at least four minutes of possession time. And of them, he was dead last in the number of drives that he averaged per game, which was five. And he finished those at a 37% clip, which, you know, you don't really need to tell me that that's pretty poor or that I don't need to tell you that that's pretty poor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, he's not really a guy that I would say like surgically bends defenses with ball handling and creation. As you say, he's more of a play mover and a transition playmaker transition passer with the hit ahead passes he makes. So for me, like the overall picture that I see, and I say this like with you, it, it would require nuance because if you're moving Brogdon for Lonzo, is that the only move that you're making? Because if it is, I, I feel like you would be amplifying some of the things that the Pacers already do well and not necessarily addressing some of the needs that have kind of carried over from one season to the next, because he isn't really a point of attack defender either. Like yeah. that's, that's not what his skill is. He's more of like a help one pass away guy, Romer type defender. So yes, you got rid of Malcolm's point of attack defense, but you didn't, address that particular issue and with Karis he's a little bit the same way like I mean he has a lot of defensive flaws but he's better in passing lanes I would say anticipating passing lanes if he gets into an isolation situation he's pretty decent with his length and staying in front but I don't feel great about his navigations of screens Mm -hmm. against guards and I definitely don't feel great about his overall off-ball defense and and help situations but Point being is, I think you could tilt more of that to TJ Warren. Warren's shown some of that this year, but then that just goes back to the whole thing at the end of the season and that you and I talked about a million times when they were getting roasted by Bridges and OG Ananobi and Harrison Barnes and this long list of, you know, a little bit bigger wings is then who would be guarding those people? Like you would be moving Brogdon out to do this. And I, I don't know that there would be a clear answer if you had to address some of the point attack with a little bit more. Warren so then like you said like maybe they do I mean there was rumors at the trade deadline maybe they do see Karis LeVert as the primary playmaker and then offensively it makes a little bit more sense because yeah Alonzo in the pick and roll it's interesting because he's improved a little bit like give him credit he's clearly a hard mm-hmm. worker his, his catch and shoot three has improved he's improved modestly it's still not a good percentage but improved modestly on mid-range pull-ups he's not a three-point pull-up threat that what teams are allowed to do then, especially when he drives right off the pick is they're going to back up and then you're not getting anything off the roll. So like per synergy, his numbers to the roll, man, whether that's the pop, the slip, or, you know, the actual rim roll are, are quite poor. So the idea that like, you're going to play him at the one, I mean, this a lot would have to change for me to think that like, you're going to play Lonzo at the one and suddenly like a lot of the complaints that are out there about Brogdon, you know, the quote unquote, true point guard like Uh, it just that that aspect of it is a little bit weird to me and then it's like what you said with Karis like last year the problem was that before Karis came back from his 
from the cancer surgery. And then after when it was just Karras and Brogdon was out, teams that were better defensively, whether it was Utah earlier in the season or the Sixers late in the season are like, okay, the Pacers only have one downhill threat out here. The best way to take that person out and whether it's Miles or Sabonis is to duck way under the screen because then we can all stay home and their playmaking out of the middle of the floor is neutralized. So like, they would drop into like the bottom 10 of the league and point pull up three point attempts. And if they want to retain McConnell, that's not boosting that off the bench either. So like, I just, I'd have a lot of questions about the overall fit. And like, I know that he's great at his transition playmaking, but like the Pacers weren't struggling to play fast at the back end of last season. And I question if they still need to play quite that fast. Cause I think it was having a detriment on their defense to an extent, but like, like I said, it just feels like there are definite things. Like, he's a good player, and there's stuff that he would do that's helpful. I can imagine that you would have him on the wing, and you could run pick and roll with Karras and Sabonis, and, or you could have him in the short corner, and then you could short some of that stuff. Like, that's useful. You're not going to do it all the time. And like, I, I think he would amplify some of the things that they already do well, and I just I'm not completely sold that he's going to address what their core issues are unless they're going to do that in addition to – like trading miles for something else. Like he's, his name's been out there. I don't, I don't know where that stands, but it it just is a little bit weird for me. This is advertiser content brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down. We break down who will be cutting cut. What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void where prohibitive. Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think one of the points I really like that you made is uh, looking at, you know, th- you know, I mean, especially going back two years, which is crazy to say it's been that long. Well, I guess more of a year and a half since we've gotten to CTJ play. Um, but... Like, I, I think one of the things that is is really intriguing about it is we, we were starting to get to the point where it looked like maybe he was going to have a higher usage role in, in what would have been last year for him. Um, you know, maybe he's starting to run more pick and roll because of his expansion as a pull-up shooter and uh, just his expansion as a shooter in general. Um, and if that's happening, uh, I wonder what his defense looks like. And I don't yeah. mean that in a bad way, but it's just like no, it's just you're fair. commanding 25 to 26% usage instead of 20 to 21, your defense is going to take a hit. And especially considering the way that he was being asked to play, like that entire back end of, of 1920, he was being asked to guard the best player on every team. And, and honestly, I thought he did a solid job of it. Um, there's still a lot of room for work. I, we've both written about that, but like, I think, if the answer at the point of attack is just consistently going to be TJ Warren, um, I would 
want to see some changes with the roster because I think I'm just yeah. at the point now, especially with watching the playoffs and the way that things have, have worked out. Like you need to have more than one guy who can get a stop on ball. It's less about having somebody who's like a total lockdown defender. Like there's value in having players like that, but um, it's almost like, I, I just think you need to look at it in terms of having a lot of versatility in the way you can play defense, not just in running different, different schemes, but being able to throw different looks at somebody like, um, okay. If, if, TJ isn't having a great night at the point of attack or he struggles with a certain matchup. Maybe you do put Malcolm on him and to, to Malcolm's credit, like I don't, I think his defense is better than people maybe give it credit for Like it took a hit, little bit of a hit last year, especially with how many minutes he was playing, but he's very good guarding up on bigger wings. Um, and obviously like you can't really have him guard smaller guards because he's not that laterally quick and that just, you know, it was a lot of that was roster construction and the oddity of, of last year's, team but um i mean ultimately i just think a lot of it's going to come down to what moves does the team make this summer um or in the coming coming week and a half i guess um but yeah i i think that if you're just deducing it down to lonzo um in a vacuum like it probably somewhat close in terms of value i think malcolm's definitely a better player right now as or at least as you know more versatile in what he brings um lonzo would help but not really in a way that's like, I mean, it would, it would help in some ways, but you, you just lose a lot in doing it. Um, yeah. Because I mean, for me, it's, it's just, it's just a little bit weird when we talk like where some of the stuff with TJ Warren was in the post game presser. Cause it's like, well, we didn't have this guy to guard bigger wings. I'm like, in some respects, yes. Like Aaron holiday never would have been guarding Mikel Bridges against the Phoenix suns because TJ Warren would have been in the starting lineup. Like I get it from that perspective, but like under Nate McMillan, those four games that they played against the now champion Milwaukee bucks, like the first game, they, well, I don't remember the exact order, but in the earlier games, there was one where they tried to use Sabonis on Wesley Matthews and then because Wesley Matthews isn't that much of a threat off the dribble, and then he would double Giannis anytime that Giannis was in the post and Brogdon was guarding him. Then in the next game, they just used Brogdon as primary, which was asking, like what you're saying, a ton when you're also expecting Brogdon to be doing all of the stuff that he does on ball the last two years. And then it took until about the last one where they let Miles do it, and then Miles tied him up a few times, but like – at no point in time was TJ Warren the primary defender on Giannis in those mm -hmm. games. Like if it was, it was stray possessions. So like the idea that like TJ is going to come back and he's going to be the one guarding those guys, like that isn't really what happened. Like it was, it was generally either Malcolm or they were double teaming. Like it, it wasn't like TJ wasn't necessarily primary there. So for me, it's like what you're saying. Like if we're just looking at this move solely in a vacuum, if, if, if I were going to move off of Malcolm Brogdon and we want to point out some of the flaws that like, you know, I do think he deserves quite a bit of slack along with Sabonis this year because of the degree of the loads. I don't think that we're necessarily taking into account exactly all that they were being asked to do, especially with what I said earlier. Like, I don't even think it was so much Malcolm Brogdon and I get that he doesn't create a ton of space as a shooter, but he didn't shoot poorly off, off the dribble threes last year. Like he did improve in that category. It's just that, when the other three starters, and I'm not trying to disparage these people, but for a part of the season, it was Doug and Justin. And like those people aren't going to do anything 
predominantly in a spot up situation off the dribble. So it just behooves teams to go under in that situation because you're taking away the matrix of what Sabonis could do on the roll. And we saw that for all three bigs, their roll frequency went down. So my point being is if I'm going to move Brogdon, it, I think it needs to address one of what Brogdon's weaknesses have been. And I do think that Lonzo is definitely a better passer. He processes stuff a little bit quicker in that sense and getting you from one play to the next than Brogdon does, but it's not addressing the thing that people have the most complaints about, which is how he dies on the vine on point of attack screens. And, you know, the fact that the Pacers still don't really have a solid answer as long as they continue to play the two bigs together with what they're doing against fours because even if we want to say oh let, they're going to stagger him next year I mean I don't think you and I ever really got into some of the stuff that was said in that presser completely but like under Nate McMillan they played more minutes apart than they did together like mm-hmm. they're they're already getting quite a bit of breathing room and lineups by themselves like that happened to an extent last year and I as much as I like O'Shea Brissett like we know what happened in the game against Sacramento when he was trying to defend the post against Marvin Bagley like that's an area that he's going to have to get better at. Maybe he does over the summer, but like you don't really have fours to automatically plug into those spots unless it's like you said, I think both of us think that Isaiah is probably going to play time with the G league next year. So I feel like those are more the holes that I see, but a lot of the names that have been coming up and rumors seem like maybe that's not the holes that the Pacers see, but they <laughs> yeah. might know, they might know what, other moves that they're planning too, like, you know, some of the stuff that was out there, like for instance, about Colin Sexton and other things like none of these players are players that I think are bad or wouldn't help the Pacers. Like they do good things. It's just, I don't know how they necessarily address where the issues were, but that's just me. No, I, I totally agree. Um, so moving, uh, unless you have anything else you want to add on Lonzo, I think no. we can transition over to talking about uh, the proposed Cam Reddish trade. Okay. Uh, there were apparently uh, talks between the Hawks and the Pacers for Cam Reddish in the 20th pick for the 13th pick from Indiana. Um, I definitely had a lot of thoughts on this one. What, what was your reaction to that? Um, I feel a little bit differently to that than, than the Lonzo trade, but where are you at with that? Right. So he's tricky because that's a good way to put it. I will say that some of the Hawks people that I follow and that have podcasts were not in favor of doing that trade. Yeah. Um, They thought that that wasn't going to be good value to only move up to 13 while moving. What pick did they have? 21? Yeah. I think it was 20. 20. Yeah to move 20 and reddish for that. But I mean, he is buried in their wing rotation. Like he has, I would say he probably has a lower floor than, than Herter and Bogdanovich and Hunter. And which other one am I missing? There's another wing. Uh, DeAndre Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and then there's also the stuff, like I know people sent it and I don't know where it stands, but there was clearly seemed to be some degree of tension with Lloyd Pierce and Cam Reddish in the aftermath of him moving on. So that felt a little bit weird to me, but it feels a little bit like, you know, he looked good under Nate McMillan when he came back in the playoffs against the Bucks. There was things in those games that I liked, but it's also like, okay, that was like what a three or four game sample size. Exactly. Like he went nine of 14 from three in the playoffs, but like six of those makes were in game six. 
and while you watch it, it's like, okay, well, in that game, he came off a zipper cut. He was used in like Euro ball screen situations. He created space for himself to make one of the threes. Like, it's like, okay, well, he's doing different things, but he's never really consistently demonstrated efficiency. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the opportunity has necessarily not been there. And it's, I, in general, it's like, oh yeah, take, you know, take a swing on somebody that might have upside, who's a wing, who can create some defensive havoc. Like I'm generally not opposed to that. Um, he can do steals. He has a good like havoc rate of block steals and deflections and by comparison to some of the other pacers, he has a decent amount of burst. They can run some lob plays with him, like what we were describing earlier. Um, I think one of the most encouraging things from that buck series was that when he did come back and the bucks were switching in the way that they were, that he did show a little bit of wiggle against Brooke Lopez on some of those switches yeah. in ways that the Atlanta Haw- other Atlanta Hawks wings necessarily weren't but i don't think that i completely or that any of us know what cam reddish is so um i don't think he's going to offer you some of the stuff that at least in theory it seems that you're going to be getting from duarte in order to plug directly into stuff that rick carlisle has done with the mavericks but that's just my outside opinion i completely agree um i think for me, just in terms of looking at value, and I talked to some Hawks people yesterday, and they were all like anti anti that for the Hawks. They're like, "That's you're giving up so much just to go to 13. And I agreed. Like, it, if if that deal was really on the table, which it seems like it was uh, based on reporting, um, like I think that would have been a very good deal for Indy. But also, like you're mentioning, it there's like, and just to be careful, like Cam had a really good series uh, with the Bucks to give him credit, and he flashed some fantastic things but also like a lot of that was just kind of shot luck like that is not who he is as a player right now I, I think you have to look at where he was for um you know he missed a lot of that season um you can go back to and look at um like in his rookie year he had a such a like he had maybe one of the worst initial months I think I've ever seen out of a rookie and that's saying something I think he shot 30 percent from the field his first 15 games and to his credit, he improved every single month, like markedly um, and became a steady shooter at the end. But like he just has always had some real uh, variety in his shot. And a lot of it can come from footwork and finding that. But the point is, like with where the team is right now, it would be very difficult for him to uh, like he would have to like the, the there would have to be a real buy in from the coaching staff and, and front office in tandem to to be focused on developing cam reddish while also trying to be a winning team which would be probably harder to do than i think people maybe give it credit for i still would be in favor of doing that move because just i don't know if you're getting that that kind of potential somewhere else um like i would i'd imagine that that any kind of talk for the deal is off now um because the the draft has passed and that's where it seemed that there was um real want for it to happen uh from the hawks side but looking at Cam, like the one thing you could say is like we just talked about having a variety of, of defenders, like he would be just about the best point of attack defender on the team, um, which would be that's I mean, that's obviously very valuable. Having somebody who could uh, play the three, um, play the two a little bit, at least on defense, maybe he's as he strengthens up, he guards some fours. But yeah, just right now, it's his offense is so inconsistent and just not fully there um, that it would be very difficult to see. Uh, like, I, like you would just get a lot of inconsistencies throughout him in the year. Like, I think that's the biggest thing with looking at rookies. Like, there are definite highs that they can have. Like, looking at 
Cam like had an obviously that fantastic series in the Eastern Conference Finals, but you also have to look at some of the games that he was having earlier in the year when he was really struggling. Right. I mean, I I think I was probably at the place most of the day where, I mean, if they would have made the move, I've been like, okay, let's see what this guy can do. And if they didn't make the move, I was like, mm, okay, that's fine too. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I know that sounds pretty basic, but I was pretty neutral to it because I just, you know, maybe he pops next year on a different team if they do, do still look to move him. Cause I know that obviously they want to have money to keep their powder dry to retain most of the core that they have. And it seemed like they wanted to kind of restart the rookie cycle if they had the ability to do it. But I mean, I've seen stuff that I like from him, but uh, obviously the effective fuel goal percentage numbers and other stuff aren't super friendly, but um, what was your opinion of the news or the, the, some of the stuff that broke overnight about teams like the Warriors and the Knicks wanting to have traded up so that they could get Duarte or, or the Warriors continuing to try to, to get Duarte moving Moses Moody to the Pacers along with whatever other asset. Um, yeah. So that's something I thought about a lot because frankly, I, uh, I had Moses Moody seventh on my board. Uh, I think in watching him, he was somebody who I clearly thought should be a target for honestly any team. Like he's a guy who I think will come in and have as much of an impact as you can right away as a rookie. Like his, his defense is going to be very good. He's already a capable shooter, both off the dribble and in catch and shoot scenarios and can self-create a little bit. He's definitely not the, uh, the kind of offensive weapon that I think Chris Duarte is, but like, I mean, Moses Moody's 19 years old. Um, he flashed a real ability to get to the foul line. Like, I think I want to say he was ninth in the entire country last year in, 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 uh, in free throws attempted, if I remember correctly. Um, so he has like a lot to his game. And I was, I think I was higher on his upside than other people, but also his fall was just a little bit weird. And we'll have to talk to you about that later. But, um, in that deal, it's interesting because there was so much around, uh, the the Warriors wanting Duarte and throughout the process and I I can't remember what was the other team you mentioned other than the, the Warriors? Knicks the Knicks the Knicks yeah I remember seeing stuff about the Knicks being interested in him too I mean it just makes sense like those are two teams that are trying to be competitive right now Chris Duarte is clearly a player who was uh seen as somebody who's going to be able to come in and uh help as close to right away as as any rookie can um I I'm a little bit curious on, on what the Pacers view with that. I mean, clearly they're, they're uh, them. And I guess, you know, 13 other teams are, are 12 because the Warriors did end up taking him after passing on him originally. Like there are just 12 other teams that view Moses Moody a lot lower than I and, and, and scouts in general did because most people had him, you know, closer to the top eight than, than in the back end of the lottery. Um, you know, I would be in favor of that move, move frankly, because I, I like what Moses could bring. And I think he's going to be a much better defensive prospect um, overall than Duarte. But I think at the end of the day, like what he brings um, with his ability to to score a little bit more on the inside probably makes a difference. Like I would I would take that deal if I'm the Pacers, but I imagine that they have a lot that's leading them to not wanting to do it. I, I don't know if that kind of thing would still be on the table. I think if the last report I saw was that, um, the Pacers were really happy with Duarte and just don't have any intentions of moving him. Um, right. But yeah. I mean, what were your impressions of it? I think, I mean, it seemed like some of the stuff that was out there was like, well, you know, the Warriors still want to get this guy and the Knicks tried to get this guy, like trying to push back against, you know, 
obviously there was a lot of upset when the when the pick went the way that it did. I, I thought yeah. I thought it was funny Tom's tweet. Um, I think he had something right before they got on the board where he's like, it is both fascinating and terrifying that the Pacers like basically could be in sync with dra- with Pacer Twitter with this pick. <laughs> yeah. Because like I it felt like most of the people that I saw, and like I don't do draft coverage, I don't have interest in it, but like like what you're saying, it felt like most of the internet wanted Moses Moody to be drafted and that there was, you know, gonna be like gnashing of teeth when Duarte was and uh I kind of like side with Tom, like it's almost a bit refreshing to me and I know what the Pacers recent draft history is, but like, it's almost refreshing to me that they didn't care. Yeah, like that, they, that, that was their own internal evaluation. And that was the best, that was the player they thought was the best available and that they still think it is obviously. Cause I believe it was the Indy star reported that the warriors were still trying to make overtures to the Pacers there. But I mean, I think that my main point here was like, I don't think it necessarily means anything that the Knicks and the Warriors wanted to do that because look at their respective situations. Like if the Knicks, the Knicks essentially had one movement shooter last year and Reggie Bullock isn't guaranteed to return. And the Warriors are on this timeline where they're getting pressure from their top three guys that like, hey, we want to compete now. We don't want to go through this situation last year, like what they some of the push and pull of James Wiseman and his development versus being able to win right away, that it makes sense that both of those teams would want Chris Duarte instead of being like, oh, well, this guarantees that the Pacers made the right pick because look how many other teams want him. Like to me, that's a little bit more team specific that it also makes sense that those two franchises are kind of more in like the situation with the Pacers, like UK, you hired Rick Carlisle. This is kind of a little bit of the cost of doing business. In addition to them saying that they think it's the best player available, like you're not paying Rick Carlisle to come here to have a bunch of like development projects. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not at all saying that's what Moses Moody would be or anything else. But I think that was the general line of thinking that they wanted somebody that they're hoping can crack the rotation and be a plug and play guy. But I mean, I think some of it too, like, I don't know where you stand with this, but I think some of it goes back to like mock draft culture in general. Like, well, I mean, like even the Spurs pick right ahead of the Pacers, like obviously there's a lot of smoke screens out there and that people don't completely know who teams are going to draft. So then all of a sudden it's like, oh, why didn't it the Spurs uh, trade down? So, because they could have got him later on. Well, how do you know there was even a deal to trade down? Like most teams probably didn't know that's who they were even taking. Clearly most of the draft experts that were showing what their intel was with mocks didn't know that's who they were taking. So like maybe there wasn't even that opportunity to do that. And then sometimes like we like to roast teams who do trade back. Like, I mean, the Suns with Cam Johnson a few years ago when they traded back, like everyone thought that was the worst move ever. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I just think there's too much that we don't know to be hypercritical of any of this. Cause like, I mean, you can be all over the Spurs if you know, why didn't they do this or that? How do you know that there was any teams that even wanted to do that? And maybe that was just the player. Like, you know, maybe it's probably fair later on. Like you could criticize their evaluation process. Just like, I think it's fair to criticize what, how the Pacers have drafted in recent years. And the fact that now Aaron holiday is on a different team. TJ leaf is a two-way player. And like you and I just said, like Goga stock feels like it's going to be at an all-time low unless next week they move one of the two starting bigs. Like, I think that those are fair criticisms, but we also don't know. Like I, I would just rather do like what you've done, like prospect analysis and big boards and have there be a more comprehensive look at what the overall team building is than like assuming that there was moves that teams could make when you don't even know if they were available. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I agree the whole, um, I, the, everything with mock drafts is, is finicky. Like even yesterday when I published my, I just called it a draft guy. I don't know what else to call it. So I had thoughts and like a big board. I don't like even having a big board. Like I, I just didn't know how else to organize it to be completely frank. Like I think, but that I, feels I, I fair. A, Cause that's yeah. evaluating prospects. Yeah. And I put a note in too. Like, I think the big board, and this is, this is the biggest thing that I can, I can come up with. Like a big board should look different for every single team because like we've talked about, like, it's just, it's, there's nuance to it. It's not best, best player available is not the best player available for every single team. Like, okay. Like, like we've, I know we're hitting on the same point, but like with Goga, exactly. Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's not linear. Um, I will say though, the Josh Primo pick was startling. Uh, yeah, I talked to some, some scouts yesterday <laughs> night and they had like, they were, they were just vexed and uh i was definitely in the same point um josh primo is a nice prospect but i was um shocked at 12 um to be completely certain right and that's fair like i think that that's where the grade needs to come from though mm-hmm. like i'm not a big fan of instant grades to begin with for what both of that you makes and two I of said. us like both of what you and i said like give these people time to actually play an nba game but like if you're gonna do it like you can evaluate what his talents are, but to say like, Oh, that was a reach because, you know, based on the mocks, like, well, the mocks don't know what, like there's a ton of smoke screens out there. You don't know where teams were, who they were really going to take. Like a lot of people that were projected to go in the lottery did not go in the lottery last night or went later on. So, I mean, I just feel like, yeah, you could say like, Oh, if the Spurs like that person so much, they could have dropped back. But what if other teams didn't know that the Mm -hmm. Spurs liked that person that much and there wasn't an opportunity to drop back? Like, I don't know. That's just kind of how I see it. And I mean, even some of the criticism too, of like, well, you already have three centers or like, why did the Kings take all these guards? Well, I don't know. Maybe they still want to go after Ben Simmons. And they're thinking that, you know, it was indicated that the Sixers were like, we don't want Buddy Heald and spare parts. We want De'Aaron Fox. So maybe that was in their line of thinking. Like, I'm not saying I know that it's just that the draft, yeah, yeah, the draft comes before free agency. So we don't know what the team's entire vision is yet, you know? So like if there are grades, which I think I saw one where it was like, Oh, well the Pacers already have all these bigs and, and now you've taken on, you traded four seconds and Aaron holiday to get to 31. And now that you're doing this to get this, you know, like long-term project, it's like, but you might think of that differently in a week from now. And you might think of it differently in a year or two from now, if he really does develop and he pops and it makes a lot of sense for what his value allows the Pacers to do. Like, this is why I said, this is why I don't get involved and don't meddle in the draft world because I just, I generally see things with a little bit longer view. And I get that why, why it's out there. Like obviously sites want to get traffic with draft grades. Obviously writers are being asked to do them. I just think that, there's just too much that we don't know. Yeah, I'm in total agreement. It's uh, there's a lot more in the dark than I think we're privy to. Um, well, is there anything else you want to hit on? I know I, I didn't get to catch all of the press for last night. I saw some of the quotes that came out. I feel like we hit on quite a few of them. Is there anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? Well, I guess where do we stand? And and I don't want this to remotely turn controversial, but like maybe even in broader terms, like what would be a successful free agency to you? Like, it doesn't even have to be specific players. Just like what by the end of next week, would you be like, you know, that that was a good week or what are you hoping to see happen? 
Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I think I would like, and I, uh, this is wishful thinking. I guess I have a couple answers, but my first would be that I would just really like to feel a little bit more concrete on where the roster is headed next year. Um, like I just like, like we've talked about this before. I just want to know which, which, which of the bigs are going to be on the roster. Like, I think that they need to have that figured out before the season. And even if that's short-sighted in my opinion, like, uh, I mean, short-sighted on my end, like, I just think they can't do another season of going in and saying, well, we're going to see what happens this year and maybe we'll make moves at the trade deadline. Like, obviously you're always going to be open and receptive to, to getting better and, and improving your team. But at the same time, I just don't think that they can afford to, to go in another year and, and say, Hey, we're going to, we're, we're going to see how the bigs look this year and maybe some buzz will come out that we tried to trade one of them uh, before the trade deadline. Like I just, I, I, I don't know. I think both of us are just kind of at that point, but not to put words in your mouth, but I'm just like, we need to know how they feel about both guys or how they feel about their fit together because what the front office has said and what they've actually carried out has not really matched up. Like they've said that they have full confidence in them and uh, believe in that group, but then they've tried to trade miles multiple times. Um, and I understand that, but I just, I, 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 I just want to have a more solidified course with that. Um, I don't, I, I guess in a more minute scale, like I'm imagining that TJ McConnell is probably going to resign. Um, and however things shake out, whether it's via trade or something does happen in free agency, which I, I don't know how it happens under the cap, but um, like finding somebody who's more of a three, four, that can be a backup off the bench. Cause they still need that line of versatility. Um, even with TJ coming back and, and bringing in Chris Duarte, like I just think that they're really missing um, another player who could kind of unlock some things uh, with the lineup um, as a three, four off the bench. I know O'Shea's there, but like we've mentioned too, like there's maybe a four or five, somebody like they're, they're just, I think there's still just one uh, player who's really missing off the bench that could, could help a lot of things lineup wise. Right. So yes, with the two bigs, I mean, first of all, it just feels like it's been 90 years and we've been talking <laughs> about this. Like yeah. it feels like that meme to a certain extent, but it's like as frustrating as it feels like just kicking the can down the road with some of it. I understand that for one, I think the front office deserves the benefit of the doubt in making yeah. trades. Like I've said this before, like I, I don't, they've been excellent at that the last several years. So whatever move they make in that regard, I mean, even going back to the Lonzo thing, like I wouldn't be mad if they traded for Lonzo ball. I don't think it would be a terrible move. I just, I don't necessarily feel like it addresses what I said, like the core issues without other moves being made in addition to that. But it's tough to know because what you just said, like at, at the pressers prior to this year, like Rick Carlisle seemed more enthusiastic about the current core than the prior two coaches did while talking about them. Like Nate McMillan at times, I mean, we can trace down the quotes about it. It was like, you know, they're both fives. They can't play together. Then it was like, well, you know, we're going to try to play them together because we want Sabonis has earned being a starter. Like it, it just never felt like this is an enthusiastic thing that we're doing. It's like, we're going to make it work because they're both really good players and we want to see if it can do it. And for whatever reason, there's always like a holdout of like, okay, well, what if Nate McMillan isn't the coach anymore and the offense gets better and 
And okay, now Nate Bjorken isn't the coach anymore. And what if the defense gets better? And while they weren't healthy at the same time, like, you know what I mean? Like there's always some lingering thing in the back of your mind of like, what if, what if that changed? But at the same time, like you're not going to be at the presser in Rick Carlisle's shoes and pull a Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid and be like, this doesn't work. Because, I mean, that, that wasn't helpful for Ben Simmons' trade value. Like, I imagine I imagine Daryl Morey's like, what are you doing to me? So they weren't going to come out there and be like, well, you know what? We're pretty concerned in the case of either one that if we pick one over the other, that eventually we're going to run up against a switching defense. And then what are we going to do long term if we, if we don't have Sabonis? Or in the reverse, eventually we're going to need to play different types of defense. And we're concerned about the rim protection if we do that. Like, they're not going to sit there and say that. Like, that mm-hmm. just isn't going to happen. So they're going to build it up as, you know, Miles is one of the best rim protectors in the league and Sabonis can do all these different things. Like, that's just what you're going to do because that's conducting good business. Um, but I'm with you in that... I'm to the point with it where I don't think you just make a move to make a move. And if there isn't something there, that's going to automatically make them better then you don't do it. But let's face it. Miles's name was in a lot of various rumors and whether that's coming from other teams or wherever it was, it seems at the very least that they were gauging the market in some regard there. So if they're going to do that and they're seeing it in the view that, and I know people probably don't want to hear what I'm going to say, but I think that Sabonis fits the Dallas Mavericks stuff that they did. And not that you're copying and pasting the playbook, but when you listen to Jenny Busick talk and others, and, and not that she was referring to Sabonis in any type of way at all, but the idea that playoff offense needs to come from playing more through principles of play and concepts and less play driven the further that you get because teams know those play calls. And I think that Rick Carlisle is very good at making adjustments, but he also likes to hunt small edges and matchups. I think that makes sense with Sabonis. And I think if, if any of what came out over the last week was from the Pacers side, I would think that's the thinking and who knows, maybe that was all coming from the Warriors and the Pelicans and whoever else we don't know. But if you are thinking that in long-term that the answer is going to be Sabonis, I would prefer that they did that now because I don't want it to be a situation like it was last February where, okay, now the rim protection's gone and our system that funnels all of the action to the rim is still in place and we're trying to make that work with Sabonis. Like, in part, that's why I wrote the Steve Clifford piece that I put. There's ways to scheme for rim protection. I can't promise you that it's going to work or that it's going to be some top-down defense, but that's a different system than what you would run with Miles Turner. So I would prefer that they just started the ground running if if that's what view they see. If it's not, then fine, I continue it because you're not going to change. If, if you're going to move Sabonis later on in the year and you want to get a bunch of draft picks and whatever else or whatever you're going to get for him, trade from bigger star with somebody else, I don't I don't know. But you're not going to have as many tweaks to make to the defense with Miles. And offensively, I don't think Miles' role is going to change that much. Like, just to be frank, like, if, if you were to move Sabonis and you're bringing somebody else in, I would think that you would be addressing some of that in some other type of way. Like, the adjustment isn't going to be as big. So that's where I would land. Like if they're not completely sold on the double big and they're leaning towards the bonus, I would prefer that they went ahead and did that now and hopefully that they can get better. But if they do feel confident in it, and when I wrote in the article, there are ways to play them together. Rick Carlisle did that. He freaking started Boban and Kristaps Porzingis against the Clippers small ball unit. He played two bigs together in a lot of the different situations. He plays various sets where that they could work off of each other. It wasn't that he was only ever playing Kristaps Porzingis at the five nonstop. I think that they could, but if they do that, I just want them to feel like 
this is how we're going to be competitive. We're going to be different. And we believe in this and actually be enthusiastic about it, I guess is where I land. But I agree with you. I expect that TJ McConnell will be back. And I kind of have a little bit of question about Jeremy Lamb still and whether there's something out there because, you know, they did talk last night about Duarte and that him being able to crack the rotation. But then when you look at it, it's like, okay, if the starters stay the same, then you got Brogdon, Levert, Warren, Turner, Sabonis, McConnell would automatically slip into that backup point guard spot. You got Justin, you got Goga, is O'Shea your backup for? But then at the two, you got Lamb, Edmund Sumner, and Duarte. Like, and that's assuming, I'm assuming that Doug is going to go and that in part played into some of their draft decisions. But um there'd still be some competition at that backup two spot unless they do some sort of move to uh, open up some playing time, I guess, for lack of words. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, it's just, I, I, I think we've, we've talked about this a couple of times about how there's really a, a, a chance for them to try and consolidate. Um, and I hate just boiling it down to that, but that's just the truth. Like they kind of need to consolidate some of the bench talent to see what, that can become, and also just to make some of the uh, some of the rotational decisions less murky. Um, so we will be looking for that this coming week. I, I suppose we're definitely going to uh, have plenty of time to reconvene and gather our thoughts on things that go on, and I'm sure stuff will happen this weekend as well. But uh, yeah, I think this is a great place to cap off, unless we we have anything else we want to hit on. But um, yeah. I think that we covered everything. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Oh, I today. think we did. This was a great podcast. I feel very good about it. Actually. Uh, we, we got all over the place. Well, well getting some of our monologues in and, and really enjoying the the pod. So, so Caitlin, this was, this was an absolute blast. Uh, I, I forgot to ask, have you had any outshine popsicles recently? Oh, I always have outshine okay, popsicles good. like that. That's, if have you heard back from their uh, their sponsorship team? Because I have not, and I'm. Uh, I'm Should we tell this story? Should we tell this story? <laughs> I think I so. Th- I don't think our listeners know about this, so go ahead and let them yeah. know what what occurred. So, Caitlin and I both on the same day, unbeknownst to each other, uh, got the exact same random DM from the Outshine Popsicles official uh, Facebook Facebook. Jeez, what am I twelve? Uh, official <laughs> Twitter page. Um. It was was it was something about like dog food. I got like a message about dog food, like that just like randomly showed up in my DMs, and I was like, uh, "Excuse me, but you are a pop school place, first of all. Second of all, why are you DMing me about dog food?" Um, so I was like, "I don't think he meant to send me that message," and they're like, "Oh, we're sorry." And then I was like, "Well, while we're here, um, me and, and my friend Caitlin Cooper, we have this podcast." And we mentioned Outshine Popsicles every single podcast, and I think you should sponsor us. And then they messaged back that they would send it along to their uh, to their um, their branding team. And I sent a screenshot to Caitlin, and I was like, "Look at what happened! This is amazing!" And <laughs> you would uh, you you can continue the story from there. Yeah. So yeah, I got the you you sent it to me, and I sent it to you. And the message I have it pulled up. It says. Um, that they had a new social media intern in training because as people know, I mean, this wasn't completely out of the blue. We were spamming them with their handle. We did. We were I was, I was ta- tagging them in like every podcast. And it says your feedback on your experience will help us improve the service provided. So um, I don't know if I should reveal this, but I got a little bit overzealous in my reply. 
and told them how much I love their product. I may have also recommended a different flavor that I would like to see happen and uh, also said if they wanted to sponsor us or send us gratuity that we would like to send pictures out of their product and then I then they just left me on read oh you got too excited and we just that's, that's I why fumbled, I fell through I fumbled the outshine popsicle oh, bag. No. I, got, I got way too excited by the direct message I got drunk with power thinking that you know this is my one in to get the blueberry popsicle that I want so oh, that'll be good I let them know like forward it along that I eat all of your popsicles. I've taste tested them all. And I would really like there to be a plain blueberry one. And then they just completely ghosted me. I have not heard back. So well, maybe we're, still, I'll, I'll just we're probably not going to be outshine influencers, but I think that they need to realize, I'm pretty sure that we both have more followers than their official brand account. <laughs> I think we do. So I don't, I don't understand why this isn't something that's getting done. They have a real opportunity with us and they are missing out. Um, so outshine, I will hit you up again outshine uh just be ready um on a, on a quick aside have you ever had blueberry lemonade yes it's delicious it's the simple blueberry probably lemonade. the best lemonade i've ever had oh yeah i have that almost every day that's the other thing i have with outshine popsicles maybe we need to reach out and say you know what we're heading over to simply and simply blueberry lemonade is going to sponsor us now send us a uh send us a, a counter offer and we'll contemplate whether or not we want to ride with you still but all right. Well, that that's enough for today. Caitlin, I appreciate you as always. To everyone listening, of course, go follow Caitlin everything she does. Read us over at Indie Cornrows. And most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening.